in an era when people are reduced to partisan bickering and squabble over the smallest of matters and never achieve any agreement on anything. We are here to provide a new light in a dark world of journalism. We are the Bipartisan with Riley Lauterbach and Hannah Albor. Welcome back to the Bipartisan Podcast, your independent source for news, fun, and reform. I'm your left-leaning co-host, Hannah Albor, and joining us for the first time today is my friend, Riley Lauterbach. Hello. Obviously, it's my first time on, but I've had past experiences with my own podcasts and productions. I was also on my high school debate team, and I'm really excited to sit down and talk about some politics with you, Hannah. That's awesome. So be sure to find us on Anchor, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast platforms. And hopefully soon you can find us on Apple Podcasts. But this is our first show on Anchor, so if you're listening through that platform, send us some messages or a voicemail via the app and to communicate us communicate with us and hopefully we can put it in our next show. Uh, make sure to check out our website for our schedule and our updates and a lot more stuff. Uh, sites.google.com forward slash view forward slash bppodcast.com. Check us out on Twitter at bipartisanpodc1. Support us on Patreon if you're able for a lot of cool perks, patreon.com forward slash bipartisan podcast. And if you're interested in sponsoring us, be sure to call or email today and we can get back to you. Cool. So let's get into our top five stories. First off is a story about the French president Emmanuel Macron and the protests that have been going on in that country. So because of these protests, which have been going on since for about a month in France over the fuel tax that was put in place by Emmanuel Macron, Uh, He has decided to scrap that fuel tax in the 2019 budget, uh, which is what these protesters wanted. However, uh, these protests are going to continue to go on, even though that President Macron has taken the tax out of the budget and it will be joined by trade unions and farmers. These protests have killed four people over the past month, which shows how violent they've become. And so, Riley, what do you think about this whole... So, idea in French. So despite all of the deaths caused by this, um, I do think that we can look at some good in this. The fact that people are able to get their voice heard and make an actual change in their government is really refreshing, especially because in a lot of countries they still deal with censorship. Something like this is extremely important to look at, that these are people outraged about what happened, and they are the ones making the change. Yes, they could have gone about it in a more peaceful way, but it is good that they are able to go out and make that change still. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's great that President Macron listened to the wills of his people. However, I do think that the protesters should take a minute to remember that he did what they wanted and kind of put an end to these protests slowly but surely in order to make sure that France stays a safe place for its people and the numbers of tourists that end up going there. And also, I think that President Macron needs to make sure that put a, that he puts a stop to further violent protests or else he could be seen as weak and really caving to the will of his people. So like, while that's good that he's listening to them, I think it's also important that he shows that he has a strong leader who wants to go about things in a safe and democratic way. Yeah, I agree. 
All right. Cool. Do you want to bring us into our next topic? Yeah. So recently, more tensions between the United States and Russia have arisen. And as we've seen in the past couple months, these tensions have started to grow as Russia has clearly made a bigger alliance with China than that of the U.S. And so the United States has defied Russian law and moved Navy ships into the, uh, uh, sorry, Navy ships uh, into the seas of Russia, blocking off uh, the coast between Ukraine and Russia. Or Syria and Russia, my bad. So, uh, and this is a clearly a power play from the United States standpoint, because right now there is high tensions between the United States and that of Russia. And what United States is trying to do is they are trying to block Russian ships from continuing trade or any sort of military advancements. What do you think about this, Hannah? Yeah, so when I read this, I was kind of like afraid because I really would rather not get into a standoff with Russia. I think that it's cool that the U.S. is trying to put ourselves into that situation and make sure that things stay safe between uh, Ukraine and Russia and make sure that we don't escalate to uh, any type of actual like physical action between the two countries. But I'm kind of worried that by inserting ourselves, we're going to make it worse. Yeah, I, I can see that perspective. But I also think this conflict that has been going on in Russia has been going on for far too long, and it's going to take foreign intervention to make a change. And the fact that no country has really taken a strive that big. The United States is willing to take that strive right now. Granted, I believe they're only willing to take that that strive because right now uh, Russian tensions are growing between the two and the United States wants to show off. But it's still finally some sort of action being taken place. Yeah, I can see that definitely. I think it's cool that we're trying to uh, make sure that things stay not at a physical war type tension between those two countries. And I think if inserting ourselves is what does that, then maybe we can kind of put it, make sure that it stays still safe, but also have ourselves be kind of that mediator. Yeah, I mean, now that the ships are there, what we're going to have to see is how it plays out now that this move has been made. Because right now, sure, this move's been made, but we haven't really had a Russian response yet to this. So we'll see. Cool, cool, cool. So let's get into our next topic. Um... Sad one, the George H.W. Bush funeral was yesterday and his burial was today at College Station. Uh, So everyone kind of watched this funeral seeing how the 43rd president, George W. Bush, would mourn his father but still maintain that presidential poise. And I think he did a pretty good job of that. You could see the emotion during his eulogy, but also he showed how his father left a legacy that he tried to follow and that every president after should try to follow because sure, George W. Bush did some not cool things while he was president, but he was definitely a statesman and a fighter for our country. Um, Yeah, so this was really sad to watch. There have only been three presidential deaths in our lifetimes, at least. That was Reagan, um, Reagan Ford and Bush Sr. And so it's interesting to see how this kind of mourning phase of America is affected by the loss of a president. Riley, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I I agree that like this is an extremely sad tragedy. Whether or not your political views aligned with that of Bush's, sure, he did some wrong, but he also did some right. And I mean, we can look at every president and say they had their downs and they had their ups when they were president. Something I did appreciate is I watched um, not the entire thing, but I, I catched some of it. And I saw quite a few different presidents like past presidents there at the funeral so yeah and i think it was really interesting to see the other presidents there because they're seeing their own future in a way 
I'm sure they must have all thought that in a few years, whether it be very close or very far away, that this at one point is going to be them in that church, in that casket, and having the American people mourn them. And I think that's kind of a scary thought, but also one that's really interesting, because it's interesting to think about how many of these funerals will we see in our lifetimes, how many will our parents see, and how many will our children see further down the line, and see how this mourning evolves as politics gets a bit more antsy and a bit more divided, and see how we, if we can still come together to mourn the loss of an American figure. Yeah, I agree, especially in a time with so much division, seeing political figures from both the Democratic and Republican side come together to group into a group to mourn the loss of somebody that, even if they never agreed with, they clearly all respected. He was somebody that laid a lot of the groundwork for how they run the country or how to not run the country. They, they clearly respected him, and it's nice to see in a time of division that people were able to unify for something like this. All right, you ready for the next story? All right. So as we know, the United States is starting to kind of crank up its economy. We are starting to slowly get out of debt. But as a result, a lot of the debt that people have accumulated is coming back to haunt them. Credit card rejection rates are now at an all-time high. And I have the numbers pulled up here that it is that um, in October, 20.8% of people are getting rejected for credit cards. That is up from a 14.4% from last year. People clearly during the 2008 financial crisis spent a lot of money under credit cards, and now that it's time to pay, they can't do that. They have not built themselves back up. So while the United States itself is rebuilding its budget, the people are starting to lose money. They aren't able to pay these debts that they accumulated, and a lot of people are theorizing that there could theoretically be another recession in the United States. So what do you think about this, Hannah? Yeah, so adding on to those numbers, like the amount of involuntary account closures is up at 31.7% from 24.9, which is a really big jump for people having their credit cards taken away from them. And I'm really interested to see how this develops because I do think that because our economy is so healthy, like unemployment is below the natural rate and interest rates are really low, even though they are getting higher, they're still at a really low point right now. I'll be interested to see how this kind of continues to grow and see if our economy is kind of falling back into that stage where it was in 2008 or hopefully hopefully not because that was kind of a really bad time for America Um, but I will be interested to see how the economy and the kind of like consumption of Americans ties together in the next couple of years yeah it's also interesting because a lot of developments have happened economically now we've seen a rise in um, online business. So a lot of private business business owners aren't making as much money. So we might not even see a collapse in the government, but a complete shift in how we look or a complete shift in how Americans consume and how our economy is ran as a result of this. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see. Like, obviously, we as like high schoolers don't have as much of a stake in it as some other people do. But we are going to be entering this economy really soon, going to college and getting jobs. And so it'll be Interesting to see how the balance of the economy shifts as we and other Gen C uh, kids get into the workforce. Yeah, I agree. All right, you ready for the next story, Hannah? Yeah, so our next story is about the potential of Michael Bloomberg to run for president in 2020. Michael Bloomberg is the owner of Bloomberg, obviously, and he was talking in an interview this week that if he runs for president, he would sell his financial data and news operation 
or he would put it in a blind trust, but because he is 76 years old, that he would rather sell the company, quote, before he dies, which is a bit morbid, but kind of a good idea because he is old and if he was going to run for president, I think it would be in his best interest to sell the company because it is such a large part of who he is and what he's known for. He would definitely be free of the conflicts of interest that are be have been plaguing this administration uh, throughout the news cycles. Um, he is a Democrat. While he was When he was mayor of New York, he was a Republican, but he has since changed parties and he has been monetarily supporting Democrats. Um, so if he ran, he would probably run as a Democrat. And personally, I don't think it's a great idea because he is so old. Uh, and if we're waiting until 2020, he's going to be 78, another four years. He would put him into his 80s and another eight years. Definitely a lot older, one of the oldest presidents uh, in America. And so I don't think it's a good idea that he would run. But I would be interested to see how he would go about it if he decided to do so. Riley? So, yeah, I mean, I think what's more important about this story is his willingness to sell his company and that discussion. Because nowadays, saying someone's going to run for president is like empty words, right? This 2020 election is supposed to have Oprah, Kanye, Zuckerberg. Everyone's saying they're going to run. At this point, it's all just empty words, fairly, for most people. And I doubt a lot of the people saying they're going to run are actually going to run. I think Trump set a standard where celebrities and business people believe that they can run for president now. And I think it's not going to turn out the way many of these people think. But I do think a lot can be gained from the economic side of this article that he understands what would happen to his company if it's blindly handed to somebody else. So I think it is morbid, but it's a smart decision to sell your company while you still have a say in it. Because if you, if you die and it gets sold to someone blindly, you don't know what's going to happen to your company. You don't know if your honor is going to be disgraced or if the company is going to be ran the way you wanted. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a good idea that he sell it while he still is able to. So that's a wrap on our top five stories, and we'll be back next with our breaking news segment. And now bringing you the hardest hitting journalism out there, it's time for Breaking News. Welcome back to our very serious discussion about the steps PETA has taken to ensure that we stop using anti-animal language. In their tweet on December 4th said, Words matter, and as our understanding of social justice evolves, our language evolves along with it. Here's how to remove speciesism from your daily conversations. So PETA, uh, bringing home the bagels since 1980, suggests some other words to say instead of phrases such as kill two birds with one stone, we should feed two birds with one scone. Instead of being the guinea pig, we should be the test tube. Instead of taking the bull by the horns, we should take the flower by the thorns. Riley, what do you think about the step that PETA has taken to ensure that we treat the rights of animals as if they are people themselves? I think this is incredible, like the fact that America is now taking progressive steps to allow animals to feel safe and secure in their own country, like they have their own space, safe space and independence in this country is amazing. It's glad to see that PETA is finally recognizing animals as equivalent to people. Of course, just because in their next tweet they stated, just as it became unacceptable to use racist, homophobic, or ableist language, phrases that trivialize the cruelty to animals will vanish as more people begin to appreciate animals for who they are. And I think this is a great step for PETA, obviously. No, no 
No joking at all. PETA's doing great here. Of course. I mean, who could deny that feed a fed horse is a far better phrase than beat a dead horse? PETA's definitely taking the right step with this movement right now. They are truly bringing home the bagels. (laughs) They are taking that flower by its thorns. (laughs) Yeah, so this is obviously, like, a really big joke. Like, sure, PETA... PETA for a long time has been very adamant about stopping animal abuse slash converting everyone to veganism. And here's this very interesting take that I saw somewhere on Twitter is that PETA is just run by like big meat corporations and they're trying to make vegans look bad. So that's my very important and very serious take on this. I think PETA is just posing as vegans instead of being real vegans in order to prevent vegans from taking control of america all right before we move on i do have two response tweets that i saw that i think really are quite incredible so one of them by ewan purchase says pick your battles Peta. there are bigger fish to fry <gasps> that's and by, anti-animal and by jason yarnell take the flower by the thorns sounds like a blatant anti-plantism to me which is just more species speciesism shame on you Peta. But they're and vegans. I agree. I think they if the they flowers. want to include animals, they should include plants as well. Of course. Like, this is kind of like a stupid stunt from PETA, I think. But also, I think the reactions to it were way out of proportion. Like, on my local news station, like, the anchor got so mad at these tweets. Like, was about to swear on live television at, like, 6 p.m. And I think that was more funny than, like, PETA's actual tweet. All right, and on to our next breaking news story. We have one of the biggest rivalries that has been going on for years. And no, it is not something like China in the U.S. or Russia in the U.S. It is Burger King and McDonald's. Now, what has been going on right now is that Burger King is offering one-cent Whoppers if they are near a McDonald's. So I think this is a great move, not only as a anti-McDonald's program, but also a great move to get more people into Burger King over McDonald's. What do you think, Hannah? Does anybody eat Burger King anymore? Like, honestly. No, but if you're you're offering one-cent burgers, I'm going to eat at Burger King over McDonald's. That's true. But here's an even better idea. Whataburger does this instead of Burger King. If Whataburger, like, gave me one-cent burgers, I would never, ever stop going. Whataburger, get on this. Hannah, I'm going to ruin your parade. Whataburger's a local thing to us. Yeah, I know that, but still. Texas okay. matters more than any other state. You can quote me on this. I will say this. Burger King's chicken fries are pretty good. I don't think I've eaten at Burger King in literally a decade, but I'll take your word for it. Okay, and finally, our last story for breaking news is that apparently the Nigerian president has died and been replaced by a clone. So hear me out, okay? So Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has died, apparently, and he's been taken over by a Sudanese clone. Like, apparently he was ill, and then he quote-unquote died, and now there's just a clone in his place. Uh, he assured his, his citizens that he is alive and will soon celebrate his 76th birthday and go on strong. But... People don't believe that. Riley, what do you think about this? I think it's clear that he is a doppelganger and not the original president. 
I mean, if we look at so many of the different weird anomalies in the world, like Keanu Reeves being a vampire, (laughs) that man never ages, all right? So if Keanu Reeves is clearly a vampire and there is clear evidence to prove that, why can't the Nigerian president be a doppelganger, some AI-controlled robot, or even have been replaced by aliens? I think the world's government should look into this because this is a potential global security threat, having a doppelganger president be in charge of Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, if I was a clone, I wouldn't tell anyone either. So should we really take his word for it? I mean, should I take your word that you're not a clone? If Okay, if you're going to be a clone or an alien or a robot, which would you be? I think I'd want to be an alien because at least I can think for myself. Yeah, I think I'd want to be an alien too. So that's a good place to stop our breaking news segment. Uh, We'll be back soon. All right. time to see if our hosts have been paying attention to the news. It's time for our current events quiz. I'll ask a question. The hosts will have 20 seconds to come up with an answer, and then we'll see who's right. Everybody ready? Let's go. Hello, everybody. I'm Rod, the producer of this fine production. And as the just showed it is time for our current events quiz as the intro said each host will have 20 seconds to come up with an answer there are three questions let's get right into it all right the first question is which nation has recently unveiled a quote-unquote laser weapon in response to u.s threats you have 20 seconds all right we are back and uh Hannah, I will hear your answer first. Go ahead. My tentative guess is China. All right. And Riley, what about you? I'll go with the classic North Korea. All right. So, the actual answer, uh, unfortunately, both of you got it wrong, uh, is Russia. Russian state media published a video earlier today, this being uh, Wednesday, of its latest, uh, not not today of the recording, I mean, as of the article was written, Wednesday. Anyhow, Russian state media published a video Wednesday of its latest laser weapon system, the Persevet. The move comes just a day after the U.S. said it would likely pull out of a key arms treaty between the two countries, and the timing of the video's release doesn't appear to be a coincidence. What can the Persevet laser system do? So far, Russia is not giving any specifics. But the country wants to assure America that if the U.S. pulls out of the INF Treaty, as the U.S. State Department threatened to do Tuesday, Russia is ready to go so far as to attack European countries if it must. Alright, are you ready for your- With lasers? With lasers, apparently, yes. Again, they don't have any information on how this works, and they have not tested it in a way that we can know what it does, but apparently they are going to- shoot lasers at european nations fake news i i I, yeah i'm calling fake news on that one uh all right ready for our second question yes sir all right which nation will be the first to make public transport free to everyone you have 20 seconds all right your 20 seconds is up we again we have cut it out for the convenience of the audience 
The question was, which nation will be the first to make public transport free to everyone? Hannah, what is your answer? This seems like something the Netherlands would do, so I'm going with Northern Europe, broadly. Okay. And Riley, what about you? We talked about them earlier in the show. I'm going to say probably France due to the gas outrage. All right. The Unfortunately, man, I must have really gotten some obscure stories. Unfortunately, both of you are wrong again. The answer is, in fact, Luxembourg. Fares on trains, trams, and buses will be lifted next summer under the plans of the re-elected coalition government led by Xavier Bettel, who was sworn in for a second term as prime minister on Wednesday. Luxembourg is home to about 110,000 people, being only a large city, the entire country that is, but a further 400,000 commute into the city to work. A study suggested that drivers in the capital spent an average of 33 hours in traffic jams in 2016. Alright, who's ready for our third and final question? <clears throat> Alright. Which foreign national was recently arrested on Canadian soil, and why? Uh, bonus points on the why, not required. You have 20 seconds. Alright, your 20 seconds is up. Riley, we'll have your answer first. Which foreign national was recently arrested on Canadian soil, and why? I'm going to go with it's Rod the Producer from his independent nation. And the reason why is for creating such a good podcast. Uh, thank you. I, I'm very flattered. <clears throat> uh, Hannah, what's your answer? I'm going to say Riley Lauterbach was arrested on Canadian soil for beating me at pool. That's a that's a Oof. international war crime. Oof. All right. The answer was, uh, I wasn't looking for a name here, but to be specific, the answer is Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei. And the reason? Violating sanctions. So, Meng was arrested in Canada and will be extradited to the U.S. for sentencing. Meng, uh, the U.S. has investigated Huawei for export violations since 2016. Uh, Huawei denies all charges. In a statement, it wrote, quote, The company has, has been provided very little information regarding the charges and is not aware of any wrongdoing by Ms. Meng. The company believes the Canadian and U.S. legal systems will ultimately reach a just conclusion. End quote. Huawei is often accused by U.S. lawmakers of sabotaging its products to allow Chinese surveillance. Uh, those allegations have led many nations, including the U.S., to bar the firm's equipment from use in telecommunications projects. Ironically, Canada, which made the arrest, has not banned Huawei equipment. So what do you guys think about this? I just like to say you can't prove that Rod the producer was not arrested. <laughs> yeah, um, zero for three on this one. Hopefully, it will be better next week. Yeah, yeah better I'll, luck I'll next week, next guys. Week. And uh, thank you for participating in this quiz. So, with that, uh, I guess that you guys will move on to the next segment without me. Uh, thank you, and I'll be back for the discussion. Hannah, I'm going to so crush you next week on that quiz. 
Before we move on with the rest of our show, let's cover three smaller stories that are still fairly important. So the first one we have is that half of high school students don't trust the media. And um, I genuinely think this is partly because of what has gone on in the past couple years, where a lot more political bias has been getting into the news cycle, um, and a lot more people are seeing from both sides of the political uh, spectrum a lot more lies and deception in order to make their party and their issues sound more important. What do you think, Hannah? Yeah, so I think this is a big reason why it's important to reform like the media portrayal of our news and make sure that different types of media are available to young people, so not just newspapers and watching on TV, but like podcasts and like what we're trying to do. We're trying to be bipartisan and like run by teenagers for teenagers. And I think that if more people start listening to things like this, we could kind of curb that number to slightly smaller. Cool, cool, cool. So next we're going to talk about activity at a North Korean missile base. So from CNN, new satellite images reveal activity at unidentified North Korean missile base. This is from uh, December 6th, which is today as we're recording this. So new satellite images have been obtained that show that North Korea has expanded a key long-range missile base in the interior of the country, like kind of in between mountains. But that kind of shows how the diplomatic talks that have been going on between North Korea and the United States haven't been working as well as we want them to. And this is kind of like really scary because for a while there, uh, earlier this year, late last year, we all thought we were going to get bombed because this whole thing was going on at a much larger scale. And so I'm kind of nervous to see if this is going to continue to escalate and if we will see a resurgence of this kind of terror in america over foreign politics riley what do you think uh i think there's also a potential that north korea is doing more things behind our backs and under the noses of the world that we don't know about for all we know this activity have could have been going on for months at this point and we're just now learning about it especially because of how secretive and closed off north korea is it's extremely possible that they have more things hidden from the world than we know right now yeah that's a scary thought you going to bring us into our next article? Yes, I do. So as the uh, United States mostly has been talking about for quite a while, is introducing more self-driving cars. We've seen a high evolution in the past four or five years of this, and recently Uber has been talking about making its first self-driving cars on public streets for tests. And I mean, I think for this brings up the classic example of the train and the people on the train where you where you have to decide which life is more valuable. Like, do we know, can we trust the AI in these cars to make those decisions for us if an unforeseen event happens? Like, I don't think this is a smart move yet. I think in, no matter how close our technology's gotten, I don't think it's advanced enough to put this onto public testing yet. Yeah, so we had to cover this last week in uh, our podcast last week about how our opinions for self-driving technology kind of shift over time. But also, these cars aren't going to drive at night. They're not going to drive in wet weather. They're not going to drive faster than 25 miles per hour. And they won't pick up passengers. Yes, this is just baseline good conditions testing. And I think that's a good place to start, at least. Because as technology gets bigger, 
com- companies other than Uber are definitely going to be trying to implement AI technology. So I think it's only smart for Uber to keep up with their competitors. I'm glad that they're taking these preventative steps and practicing at very good conditions first, but I do hope that they practice some in these worst conditions before they put it out to the general public. I agree, but I do think that right now what is happening is that they are putting these back onto public streets, and even if they are more ready than they were in the past, and even if they do have a backup driver ready to save this, I still think it's too high of a risk value to put these on public streets right now. I think it still needs a little bit more time, and the public needs to see a lot more of private demonstrations before we really put it out onto a public eyeline. Yeah, I can see that. I definitely, like as I've talked about multiple times, hate driving. And so I'm all for this, but I do understand the need for more testing and more uh, trust for the public in Uber and other AI technology. It's time for the Bipartisanship Update, presented by the Bipartisan Podcast. Okay, and as you just heard, we have our Bipartisanship Update next. This is a kind of sad, not quite bipartisan one, but from Roll Call on December 5th, uh, Progressive Groups Trash Historic Harvard Bipartisanship Forum for new members. And so this is a presentation that is held every election cycle to help new members of Congress kind of get into that feeling of bipartisanship, which was held at Harvard University. It's been going on for 50 years. And recently, the newly elected Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Anaya Presley of Massachusetts held an impromptu meeting outside of the room that talked about having more bold action in Congress rather than centrist compromises that do not address the root causes of pressing issues. So while this was a time for bipartisanship, they took the opportunity to bring into light some other issues that they found uh, more important. So Riley, what do you think about this? I think that going behind the back and trying to stop this kind of centrist view where we help each other out, where it is a clear unification is the complete wrong way to go about it. We should be unified. We should look at this as a way to compromise. Compromise helps everyone involved because you have to think of it this way. fifty Around 50% of the population of the America lean on the left. The other 50% lean on the right. So if we push one political party, one political party's idea, the public's not going to be happy. That's where compromise comes in, where we make something that both parties can look and see good in. Yeah, I agree. Although I do think that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Anaya Presley had the goodwill in their hearts. I think this was kind of the wrong way to go about it. However, I think it's important that we discuss the difference between stopping bipartisanship and taking that moment to address situations that should be brought to the forefront of our politics. I do think that they went about the wrong way, but that they tried their best to have the important issues that are important to their constituents and important to people who follow their ideology and who followed them on their campaigns have that be brought to the forefront and i think it's kind of the same as protesting or filibustering it gets your point across just kind of in the wrong way but hopefully once the congressional session starts in january uh all members of congress from both the left and the right will come together to do its best for both their constituents and america as a whole yeah that's good uh i also think that a lot of people have this false idea that things take too long when we try to compromise, but the reason things take so long and the reason we shouldn't be taking these bold actions is because it takes that time for both parties to thoroughly figure out 
the differences in their ideas, and in order to make a good compromise for the public is the reason it takes so long. And so I don't really agree with this idea of more bold actions. I think it's better that both parties talk it out and decide on a compromise that will be equally good for both sides, that even if both sides don't get exactly what they want, they are still represented in these policies. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a big misconception in America and surrounding politics that compromise is sometimes a bad thing because you lose out on things, but that's inherently how compromise works. Like we teach it to kindergartners and if we can teach it to kindergartners, I think that we should hold our uh, elected officials to the same kind of concept of you give up something that you want in order to make sure that everybody's happy and everyone is safe and well accounted for, which is truly what we're trying to achieve through having a Congress and through passing bills like this. All right. You ready to move on to the discussion, Hannah? Yeah, let's do it. Thank you guys for that uh, analysis on the news and the bipartisanship update. It is now time for our uh, discussion. Today's discussion, which I will be moderating as usual, is on ranked points voting, or RCV. So before we get into the discussion itself, I'm just going to give a quick overview of RCV because most of our listeners probably have no idea what it is. So ranked choice voting, also known as the alternative vote, is basically where instead of one vote, like usually you vote for one candidate, usually, uh, instead everyone would number their, each voter I should say, would number their number one pick all the way down the list uh, until the list ended or they reached a candidate that they absolutely did not support whatsoever, in which case they wouldn't put a number there. So after the voter casts their ballot with their uh, ranked choice, then basically what happens is if someone does not, if a candidate does not have 50% of popular support already, the person, the candidate with the least support, let's say 5%, is eliminated, and their votes are distributed to whoever each voter um, put as their second choice. And this process continues where whoever has the least amount of votes is eliminated, and their votes are redistributed according to the second, third, fourth choice, etc., <clears throat> until at least one candidate has uh, 50% of the vote. And if more than one person has 50% of the vote, then it would be whoever has the higher percentage of vote, obviously. And so the idea behind this uh, that you guys will be discussing would be that instead of uh, a two-party system, which uh, our current system obviously trends to, this does not trend as much toward a two-party system. And then the other idea would be that whoever gets elected into whatever position needs filling would have at least half of the support of the people who voted them in, rather than like 30% or 20%, which is normally the case these days. Uh, oh, quick note before you discuss, this would not be done for presidential elections because we would need to amend the Constitution, and it's probably not going to happen. So, here we go, guys. Uh, the first question I have for both of you is, overall, would you say the ranked choice vote is good or bad. Hannah, you go first. So I am in favor of like kind of shifting politics away from a two-party system. I just don't think this is a good way to do it, purely on the fact that it would be really hard to implement 
because voting is already so precarious in many places. Already, people don't go vote because they think it's too difficult. And I think that this would only enhance that level of difficulty because if we're changing our entire election system away from what we do now, then many people would think that it's not worth their time to learn. So I think there are better ways to make voting more applicable to a two-party system to have, or more applicable to move away from a two-party system, excuse me. Things like early voting, mail-in voting, and like re-enfranchisement would really allow for more people to vote and allow for more ideas to be heard. And we can kind of move away from the idea of a two-party system if more people are able to have their opinions be voted on. All right, and Riley? So personally, I believe that the effects of this would be almost negligible. We've had two parties since basically the foundation of America, and I genuinely don't think that this would eliminate two parties. I think it might lead to more favorable president choices from the public, where we'd see a lot more either a Republican that still has some Democratic ideas elected or a Democrat with some Republican ideas elected, but I don't think this could be implemented in any logistical way. As Hannah was saying, already people think that it's too hard to vote. On top of that, this would not only, because people are having to rank their choices for different candidates and different positions, it would logistically take longer for voting at that point. And then I would believe that most of the traditional voting uh, voting polls, which we still do have a good chunk of pen and paper voting, it would need to all go into electronic digital if this complicated system of ranking your candidates uh, were to be implemented. Sorry, like, I don't think it's inherently, like, good or bad, but it's really, like, a complex issue that would, if we did implement it, would take a lot of election cycles to become the norm and to become more socially acceptable. And I think that in that time, we would just lose a lot of people voting in America, which is a not great thing. Yeah, I I agree. I think that right now our electing system isn't perfect, but implementing a brand new one this far in the history of America, one that is a tradition that so many people are accustomed to, I don't think this would go over well. I think we'd see a far less voters go to vote, especially since this would not be implemented for presidential elections. People already don't vote enough in these smaller elections. This would reduce that number even further, and I don't believe it would have any effect on the two-party system at all. All right. Uh, Thank you both. And um, our next question is, if uh, ranked choice vote uh, voting were to be implemented again after presidential elections, uh, how would it be done? Riley? Um, If it were to be implemented, uh, I do think that we would see a 100% shift to electronic voting. I don't think we would see any more traditional pen and paper voting because it's just too logistically impossible for people to sit there and count which vote got this one, which that. It would take too much communication when if it was all digital, it'd be centralized. Um, On top of that, I do think it would be a bigger push for third parties to get involved. Um, While I don't think it would change the two-party system too much, I do think it would be more beneficial for third parties to think they've got a shot and these third parties would be more active, and we'd probably see a lot more candidates for different third parties in this case. All right, and Hannah? Yeah, so I think we would definitely need to start with a lot of education on the ranked party, on the ranked vote system, and I think that we could do that through either, like, 
commercials or having like town halls in cities that discuss what's going on and discuss how to vote since it is a whole new system uh, that would have to be done first and then I think having that new ballot with third-party systems would allow for third parties to be in more debates and to have more commercials and to be more present in the uh, electoral cycle. I think that there would be a larger push to have debates for congressmen or even mayors or city councilmen, which there aren't really now, especially where I live. Uh, we don't really have that. And so I think that would push for more people to learn more about the candidates for running for office rather than just the letter next to their name, because there would be so many third parties who would really have to get down and dirty into their issues. All right. And for our next question, uh, which parties would benefit? Would there be a change at all? Hannah, we'll go to you first. So I think the parties that would benefit would definitely be uh, third parties, non-Republican Democrat candidates. They would, they, they would definitely benefit from this because they would have, like I said, more time to get their voices be heard. But ultimately, the party that is most favored in that district would still come out the winner. It doesn't matter if you have more third parties, the candidate with the most amount of people supporting them will be the one ultimately to win. And that could either be a Republican or Democrat, as we see now, or it could be a third party, depending on um, depending on how they're how depending on how the election plays out. But as we see it now, third parties don't do very well, especially in like presidential elections. And even though this won't be implemented on a presidential level, I think that example could trickle down into city councils and mayors and congressmen. All right, and Riley. As I've said, I don't think this would really hurt either party. I think uh, it would be there would be zero change to both Republican and Democrat, but I do think third parties would start getting more attention. And definitely in the short term, I think Republicans and Democrats will still dominate. Eh. But I think eventually, if a change like this were to be pushed, and when I say eventually, I mean after a long while, we could see an eventual shift to more and more people willing to elect third parties, and we might see third parties hold some of these government spots. But for the short term, at the very least, I think it'd be negligible for both Republicans and Democrats. I don't think it would have any effect on voting. I just think because of how the ranking would, we'd see a couple more votes here and there for third parties than we did in the past. All right, that wraps up. Uh, excuse me, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you both. And uh, <clears throat> I guess uh, that'll be it for me this episode. I'll see our listeners next episode. And for now, uh, we'll be moving on to our feature story. And now let's head into our final story, our feature story for the show, a escalation of Russian-USA impending war. So Mikhail Gorbachev talked to Time on December 5th talked about the passing of George H.W. Bush and how he believes uh, that peace between Russia and the U.S. is in jeopardy. And along with that, BBC News discussed on December 5th as well that Russia will build missiles if the U.S. leaves the, the treaty, which is named the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Uh, Riley, what do you think about this escalation? 
I think that tensions over the past couple months have been growing between what we have really seen is a grouping of Russia, China, and North Korea, and the United States and a couple of its allies. Uh, I think that we are getting closer and closer to the reality of a war. Um, I know a lot of people don't like to talk about that and want to say that both Trump, Putin, Xi Jinping, all of these political figures involved just have empty mouths, but in the past couple of months, it's been getting scarier and scarier and more realistic of an idea of an actual war happening. And personally, I believe it could go out onto a global scale where we see a battle of more ideals between kind of communist ideology of old and more modern kind of democratic ideology from the West and part of Europe. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it goes past the idea of government processes and more into just the animosity between Russia and the U.S. and China and the U.S. and North Korea and the U.S. and everyone over there who's just mad at us for being Americans. And I think that doesn't have to do with democracy more than just our military power and that they're intimidated by us because we have been a large part in every war that's taken place since basically America was founded. And I think that the more powerful we become, the more scared they become, and the more powerful they become, and we're just going to end up, like you said, in another world war. And that's definitely not a cool thought, uh, one that I try to avoid, but I think it's more and more becoming a reality. I mean, you have Mikhail Gorbachev, the only president during the, um, the only president of the Soviet Union, saying that he thinks we're becoming more closer to war. And I mean, I'll take his word for it because he was like there when it was ha- when this whole thing was happening and that's scary to put it yeah i do well i also genuinely think though that the reason this could escalate far more than just a war between two countries is the fact that russia china north korea korea and a couple other nations kind of still have this old world war ii view of conquest in mind uh they don't want to follow any sort of global rule they want to be independent on their own and rule their people without any sort of regulation or input from other foreign nations. And I think that this could definitely escalate because these three countries involved also have conflicts with many of the United States allies. We could see Japan hop into the fray because of their rivalry with China. We could see nations like South Korea jump into the fray with their rivalry with North Korea. Like, more so than when people were talking about when the war on terror was happening, a lot of people thought that could escalate to a third world war. But back in then... It was the entire world looking down on one small group. Now, these are three massive powerhouse countries coming together, and we could see another grouping of countries come together. And it seems more realistic than ever that a third world war could actually happen. Yeah, I think if we, when you throw like the UN into the mix and the EU, they're going to side, I think, probably with the United States. And that's just a whole amalgamation of countries against three of the world's greatest powers three countries who hold nuclear weapons and who apparently hold lasers and i think that if we hit that point of a third world war we can pretty much say goodbye to humanity as we know it because those nuclear weapons are going to come out because we are so afraid of everyone who's against us both the united states and russia north korea china we're so afraid of losing that we'll take that step first And so if we don't end up in a Cold War, we're definitely going to see the end of life on Earth as we know it. Yeah, I also think that um, because of how 
World War II and the Cold War ended, where the United States kind of forced democracy on nations like Cuba and China, we could see that even when if China, North Korea, and Russia decide to ally together, we could see a lot of nations that were forced into democracy by the United States and their allies at the end of the Cold War join in. I think it's a possibility Cuba could end up allying with Russia. Um, I definitely think that maybe even some of the economic failing nations down in South America could probably see some sort of advantage in joining in a military force. So I don't even think it'd be the entire world versus three countries. I think these three countries have the potential to gain a lot of different poor countries that don't believe they're being justifiably helped by the United Nations in the entire world, that feel like they're being underrepresented, and that what the United Nations efforts are being put forward aren't actually doing much to help them. I think that this could be a massive power play that Russia, China, and North Korea, if they did declare war at the right time, could gain far more allies than most of the world is thinking, and I don't think it'd be as black and white as the United Nations versus Russia, China, and North Korea. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that, but you're completely right. Like, that's certainly, like, a step further that we could go in having the countries who are economically disadvantaged and who have been upset by the United States poking its nose in their business join with the other side. So how do we how do we stop this before it becomes a war? How do you think? I genuinely think there is no way to stop this because even when the United States and the United Nations tried to resolve this peacefully by implementing things such as sanctions, it is clear that China and Russia broke those. I mean, we heard two or three months ago of that China and Russia had been breaking weapons sanctions for months. Like, I don't think there is any way to peacefully resolve this at this point. It has now become rather than this kind of end of Cold War, we want to unify to these old ideals coming back up in these countries, and now it's going to be more of a fight uh, based on their ideals than it is really going to be a fight based on any sort of economic value at this point. I think there's no way to stop a fight based on ideals. While things such as economy can be worked out, this is a fight of old ideas versus the new ideas. This is a whole United States push this on these countries, and these countries don't like this. This is no longer, I think, a way to resolve this unless the world wants to give Russia, China, and North Korea complete control of their people and any sort of expansion they want, but that only causes more harm in the future. It only delays the inevitable. I think we are heading to a war. I think it's definitely going to happen, and I don't think there's any way to avoid it. Dang. Yeah, I think that we can at least try to find a balance. I think we should do our best to pacify Russia while still standing strong. I think, I hope there's a way we can do that. Um, maybe lessening those sanctions on Russia and China and helping their people more than we help their government. Sending more humanitarian aid might be a good idea so that the citizens of Russia and those other countries are not also against us. It's one thing for their government to not like us, but it's another for inherently their people and their citizens to also not like us. Because you can have a war between governments, but it's a lot more challenging to have a war between citizens. Because I think we are more able to see each other as humans rather than politicians seeing each other, well, like, while politicians see each other as enemies. So I think we can pacify Russia while still making sure that they know that we will stand strong for what we believe in and how we expect people, no matter what country they live in, to be treated while still making sure that we don't speed up the process of heading into a, a war. As much as I like that idea, I don't think it's feasible. And I think it's just at this point with how high tensions are and how long they've been boiling 
and just how much over the edge all these countries involved are about to be pushed, I think it's a far smarter move for the United States to continue to make military tactics based on this. I mean, as we talked about earlier in the show with the United States going, putting their navy uh, over in Russia, it's clear that both sides have been ready for war for a while, and I think pushing peace any longer might just be a waste of time that could make us end up losing a potential war. I think right now what the United States should be focusing on is gathering allies. A valuable ally most people don't even realize could be taken into account for a potential war is Ukraine. They are a great they are part of that one principle that Russia wants. They want Ukraine so bad. And if Ukraine allies with these more powerful nations, I genuinely think it'll be not only a land benefit for one side of this potential war, but I genuinely think it'd be a good uh, it would be a good spending of the time we have before this war to help rebuild Ukraine and gain them as an ally in case of this. And again, as much as I love and I hope we could resolve this peacefully, I don't see a feasible way for us to do that. I think it's more smart for America to start looking into potential war tactics and preparing for the inevitable. Yeah, I think we should all just say a prayer and hope for the best, honestly. All right. As as fun as it's been talking about this Russia with you, I feel like if we this this conversation could go on for like two or three hours and no one wants a five hour podcast. Yeah, I have to go to bed soon so I better not have nightmares about nuclear war. All right. I guess we will wrap this show up then. Cool. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching my first week. I really enjoyed being on. and I hope you guys enjoyed watching me. We do have a small update. I don't have an exact date, but our producer is going to be working on a daily two-minute bipartisan update for you guys so you guys can get a little bit of daily dose of this type of content without having to wait as long in between different thing, different productions. On top of that, you can find us on Anchor, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other platforms, and we're working on getting onto the Apple Podcast at the moment. You should check out our websites for our schedule and more. Uh, you can contact us via Twitter at the Bipartisan Podcast One. You can email us at bipartisanpodcast at gmail.com. You can call the number 619-201-0964. You can check us out on Patreon if you're willing to spend a little bit of money to see the production increase at patreon.com slash bipartisanpodcast. If you're interested in, in sponsoring us, call or email us today. I've been Riley Lauterbach. I've been Hannah Albor. And come back next week for your independent source for news, fun, and news. Bye, guys.